you know, they give you like this like trivial amount of money, like fifty dollars, to like this um, extracurricular theater. So I got to write and produce and direct plays, and that taught me so much about production and development, like you know, just any kind of creative product. And I think I always tell those people who ask me, you know, who want to be developers, like just produce something, produce a magazine, produce a play, produce a film, produce something and get it done. And just seeing how you view it at the beginning and all you have to do to get it to the end is such a valuable experience. That was Ken Levine. It was so great to have Ken. I've never met Ken before. What a cool, chill dude. That was Ken talking about the advice he gives to folks who who want to get into the industry, which is just make something. Make Mm -hmm. make something. Doesn't even have to be a game. Just get 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 the experience under your belt of creating Mm -hmm. and finishing something. I think that's fantastic advice. I agree, one hundred percent. Yeah. How you feeling, Aaron? You got a you got a little bit of a cold happening or something? I got a cold right now. I got it from traveling the world the past three weeks. But (laughs) I wanna say that I was really nervous talking to Ken. I've never been nervous with any guests like that. It was specifically how come? Because you because you're a big fan of Bioshock? You're like I think it's the kind of fan of of Bioshock because I'm a fan of a lot of stuff. Uh Well, yeah, I was going to say like that game when it came out, it was a very like the art of the game doesn't look like any other game on the market. The gameplay was like, and he talks about about the gameplay mechanic in the podcast. But yeah, like when that game came (laughs) when that game came out, I was in a certain place in my life. It was so many things, and that game kind of, it spoke to me in a very, like, secret place. You know, the place that's, like, really deep. Like, you can't really, it's kind of like a song, like the song of summer, like, of of 75, and then you hear it, and it's all of a sudden you can smell 1975 again. You can hear 1975 (laughs) again. You feel 1975 again. So that game kind of does that to me, you know? And Okay. And when I see pictures of it, yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm going to meet the guy that's kind of responsible for this. And I was a little nervous. And I kind of feel like that was, uh, I could think he could tell. You could smell nerve. Like when you're someone like, you know, you could smell it on people. <laughs> I know you do. You, and you, well, you, know, and I, you know, I think you can, see, you can see it more, I think, more than smell it. You know, you could see it, you know, when, when somebody's well, a you little know. tight in there. But, yeah. that's, but that's, you know, I'm, well, so I'm glad you got a chance to, to meet. I'm glad I got a chance to meet Ken, too. I didn't know he got the first award, the first, uh, what is it called? The All right, the... well, so I looked this up, okay? Golden Joystick mm-hmm. is an award. I think it might might be um, in, in Britain, but that, that award has been around for a long time, and it started with, like, you know, kind of game of the year. They would have categories like best programmer, you know, uh, best publisher, and they would add every year. They would like add a category. And when they first added the lifetime achievement award category, Ken was the first winner. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So look, I unpacked that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, because that happens in the first two minutes of the call yes. of the of the interview. Yeah. A couple of quick little things I wanted to mention. I did reference a lecture called the La- it's titled the last lecture, and it's by Randy Pausch, who is uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon. I kind of blanked on the last name during the the interview, so I just wanted to complete the thought there for anybody who wanted to look it up. It was recommended to me to listen to, and I followed the recommendation, listened to it, and I thought it was exceptionally powerful. Um, It's on YouTube. Yeah, the last lecture. Also, quick shout out to friend of the show and friend in general and great person, Josh Sway for providing some download codes for his film insert coin that's going to go into our codes game so head on over to the discord Uh, lots of interesting stuff that we're giving away and lots of interesting puzzles putting being put together by our community manager doug some fun stuff stuff happening over there and if you want to check out insert coin head on over to josh's site www.insertcoindoc.com all one word insertcoindoc.com or uh, go to your favorite streaming service and check it out. Important film, great documentary to watch about the industry. Yeah, really good, really good. And with that, why don't we tee up our conversation with Ken? It's a good one. Lots of knowledge. Except for me being and- nervous and mispronouncing <laughs> and and rand and rind, you know, like a pork rind. I saw his face go what? Like when I said it, and I saw you like go what? And I'm like, hey, I'm dumb. I don't know much about nothing, but uh, hey, what's up? Anyways. 
I was nervous, man. I mispronounced uh, everything wrong. Hey, anyways, well, have look, fun in the podcast. You, you had you had some you had some wins in there too, I think. So it's uh it's a good. I hope you enjoy. Good times. Good times. Are you a game developer or looking to become one? Consider joining the largest nonprofit professional group in the industry, the International Game Developers Association. Do you know the IGDA chapter near you is probably hosting an event soon? And they're probably serving free pizza. The IGDA supports game developers by providing mentorship, education, and advocacy for our craft. Whoa, a discount on Dell computers! And 75% off the Audio Hero sound effects library. If you're as passionate about game development as we are, check out the IGDA. Visit IGDA.org forward slash membership and use the code IGDA fourth curtain 15 to get 15% off your membership. What a treat today as we welcome Ken Levine to the program. Ken got his start at Looking Glass Studios. And Ken, if I get any details wrong, I, I, I try to do my research, but sometimes I stray a little bit. Just jump in and correct me. But Looking Glass Studios, writing on the game Thief, one of the first stealth games in first person. Ken went on to found Rational Games, making System Shock 2, and of course, the Bioshock games. He currently runs Ghost Story Games, where he is pioneering a new form of interactive storytelling that I've heard dubbed as narrative Legos. That sounds amazing. Count me in on that. And in 2013, bagged a golden joystick, the very first Lifetime Achievement Award. I hope that doesn't make you feel too old. Wait, he got the first one? Yeah, he got the first uh, Lifetime Achievement golden. Hey. Yeah, Yeah. and that thing's been around for a while. That whole award program, I didn't actually know how long they've been doing that, but it's been a long time. And I believe, I believe all the way from Queens, if that's right. Yep, my first year. Queens. Yep. I don't remember because <laughs> I was only one when I left. But um, Oh, like, you, oh. <laughs> you left Queens at one. Okay. And it's not all a right. treat to correct you. It's a feast. <laughs> it's a feast. <laughs> what a feast. <laughs> that just a little thin wafer sorry where did you grow up do you grow up on east coast or yeah i was born in the salvation army hospital in queens and then my 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 brother and sister were like born at nice hospitals by the time they got to me they're just like yeah go to the salvation army hospital and then i grew up in northern new jersey yeah until i went to college and graduated then i've sort of been all over the place since i graduated Lived everywhere. Lived in L.A., lived okay. in New York, lived in San Francisco, lived in Manhattan, lived here. I grew up in Westchester, so maybe I was just right on the other side of the Tappan Zee Bridge from you. Where, which part of Westchester? <laughs> Arsley, New York, right next yeah. to Dobbs Ferry, near yeah. White Plains. We had Matt Cast- I don't know if you know Matt Costello. He, he wrote Seventh Guest. Grew up in Queens, lived in Dobbs Ferry for a while. Oh, East, East Coast. So hold on, Mets. Reads the right Mets or Yankees. <laughs> Oh, I was no. a Mets. I was a Mets kid. Yes. Oh wow, that's two for two. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always like the underdogs. So yeah. um, I was yes, a Mets kid. exactly. They have a cooler logo, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, better color. The colors, the orange, the stripes. And blue. Yep. Yeah. Is it called City Field now? I still can't. Still Shea Stadium to me. Yeah. Not not a great stadium though. Remember they had that big, it had that big empty <laughs> part at the back, and um, I remember going that? to see a, a Jets game. One, one day there, and it was like, you sit up top, up top, and it's right by the airport, and it was so cold, and there was nothing, there was no back to it, and you just had a freezing cold coming through. Oh, it was a giant um, hole. Yeah, they, they didn't have, they just had a part of this, part of the stadium was just em- this empty hole. It was a really strange stadium, so it's probably good there. Yeah. I don't think it's there anymore, is it? Yeah, it's still, it's still there, right next to uh, Flushing Meadows, where really? they do the, uh, the, the tennis and the World's Fair. I was there. I took my daughter to U.S. Open last year, and that, that whole stuff is right. is all right around there. I haven't been to a uh, Mets game, and oof. oh, we're a, we're a baseball podcast now with Kevin. Yeah, yeah we get, you know, we're, we're not even baseball sports. fans that much. So we're yeah, not. We should, so so okay. You've lived everywhere: East Coast, West Coast. I'm guessing you like the East Coast a little better than the West Coast, since that's where you are now. It's beautiful on the West Coast. Um, I really liked it. I liked living there. I lived in San Francisco for a year, and I really liked it. And then L.A. And L.A.'s got you know, it's a very Hollywood town, and that culture sort of seeps through everything. And I have a lot of friends out there, and you know, I, I really enjoyed living out there for a few years. But I think I'm more of an East Coast person just by by nature. I must have ended up doing the opposite because. I kept coming west. <laughs> I went from New York to Chicago, and then Chicago out here. It's hard to imagine going back to the winters. Was Bungie Chicago in Chicago? Yeah, we we started in Pilsen, which was like one of those 
sketch neighborhoods around Chicago. Yeah, yeah. We were there until we moved out to Seattle in 99, 2000, 2000. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, so you went to school to study writing. Is that right? Yeah, I was a theater major. Drama? And, um, yeah, drama. Theater major. It was really useful. Like the, the school itself was not particularly, the classes weren't particularly useful, but I got a chance to put on a bunch of plays there. You know, they give you like this like trivial amount of money, like $50 to do like this um, extracurricular theater. So I got to write and produce and direct plays. And that taught me so That's much cool. about production and development, like, you know, just any kind of creative product. And I think they always tell us people who ask me, you know, who want to be developers, like just produce something, produce a magazine, produce a play, produce a film, produce something and get it done. And just seeing how you, how you view it at the beginning and all you have to do to get it to the end is such a valuable <laughs> experience of any kind. So I felt by the time I got into games, having done so much theater, that was, you know, complete shoestring budget, no backup plan, you know, building our own sets if we had money for sets. Um, I just really, I thought it was really good because it taught you what you can do and how an audience reacts to things. And that was, that's something like we just did, um, you know, we're doing some focus testing now. It's like outside groups, you know, where you sit behind the glass curtain and it's just really cool <laughs> to see. I, I love feedback from audiences, even if it's negative. It's so helpful because you never really know. I'm sure you guys have this experience. You never really know until you put it in front of somebody what you got or what you don't got. Yeah, I also found sometimes you'll express an opinion to like, say somebody, this has happened to me many times. So like me and a designer, were talking about how something is going. I'll play their work and I'll give them feedback and we'll have a, you know, whatever, spirited conversation. And then we take it and put it in a play session and we both watch people who are un not vested in this at all. They're just playing, you know? And that is truth, you know? Yes. Me, designer, we could talk about ideas. Those are opinions. <laughs> what the player says, yeah. truth, and it's like it that action right away. It's really interesting. Yeah, the audience doesn't know what they want, but they're never wrong about what they don't like, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Like, you, yeah. you can't go to the audience and say, "What should I do?" You can go to the audience and say, "What do you think of it?" And they'll tell you. And if you're open to listening to it, you'll learn a lot. I've seen some younger developers sort of get in opposition to the audience, and I think that's always a dangerous place to be because you. You know, they're going to tell you the truth. And if you can find somebody who can tell you the truth about your art, that's, that's incredibly valuable, even if it hurts. That's what's happening now with a lot of big companies. You know, the developers slash creators are starting to attack the audience when they uh, dislike something. And you get this weird drama where they're, like, fighting each other. And it's like, I kind of feel like that's also, it's bad, but it's also more press. So it actually exposes the product more. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Look, I think... I'm sort of like allergic to arguing with the audience because at the end of the day, like you can't win, right? Yeah, if the audience right. tell you they don't it's like the it, it's you know, you can't put a gun to their head and make them buy the game. And, you know, I really appreciate, you know, the 60 or $70, whatever it is, it's a lot of money. I take that as a responsibility. And also it's just really smart to, <laughs> you have to try to nurture yourself as much as you can to criticism. And remember, like, if you're the person making the, the decisions, that it's okay. Like, you can hear anything. Like, I'm fortunate that I'm the creative director, so I get to act or not act on the feedback. But you got to hear it all, and you gotta you got to hear it with an open heart. Um, because if, you're, if you think you know what your game is, you, th you see it because you're so close to it, you can't see it as somebody who's never touched it before. You, you should be grateful... And it's hard to be grateful, but it, it, that, that, that <laughs> feedback, if it's honest and open, and it, it's incredibly useful. For sure. I have actually a couple of questions off that thread. Sure. I'm curious if you've ever gotten like memorable feedback that was substantive that you like do you, that you remember like that because I remember I putting something in front of players thinking it was right, and after the play test, I decided mm, no, we're going to change that, and it was pretty big. And yep. it was sort of, it was like one of our control schemes that I thought was very clever. <laughs> it was what, a little too clever. What, what, what game? What game? Uh, th this was, this was on a mobile FPS game that we were doing, you know, these touch controls that were, yeah. nobody had ever seen them before, you know, that, and yeah. they were like, yeah. oh, this, this is designed for the device. But really what they wanted was something they were familiar with, you know, yeah. or at least they, they sort of rejected the unfamiliar. I have um, the same thing. I'm curious if you've had, yeah. Your interface is, your interface is always wrong. Like the first time you come up with it, your control scheme, your <laughs> interface, it's always going to be wrong. You're n it's the hardest thing to intuit out. But yeah, I've had feedback. 
I remember we were working on Bioshock Infinite and you have this sort of companion character in it named Elizabeth. And she's sort of a young woman, a 19-year-old woman with these you know, incredible superpowers. Uh, somebody's, a, a, a guy who worked on the team, his wife was a friends and family tester. And her feedback, I remember, still remember it seeing on the page. And I was so proud of this character. And I thought she was great. And I thought I was kind of done. I had got her voice down and she was awesome. And she wrote down, Elizabeth seems like she's developmentally disabled. And I was like, oh, because I was trying to pitch her, key her young, but I keyed her way too young. (laughs) And it killed me. And previously, like on Bioshock, the character of Atlas was played by this actor who had a southern accent. And nobody liked, and it wasn't the actor's fault. And for some reason, people struggled to trust the accent. And I had to rewrite and re-record and recast the whole thing based on feedback. And it was heartbreaking because oh, wow. I had so done all I did all his lines. I recorded all his lines. Wow. So he had like a southern lines. drawl. Yeah. Like, I don't he trust was, that guy. <laughs> he, he sounded a bit like Foghorn Leghorn, you know, and nobody trusted oh. him. And I needed people to trust Atlas, right? I don't know if you know the That's character. Right. That's right. Yeah. He does eventually, you know, you know, spoiler, betray the trust, but you gotta So we came up with this, you know, Irish accent thing, and people found it much more charming, and it was amazing, the difference. I trusted Atlas. (laughs) Well, that's because you got the the (laughs) re-recorded. So doing, like, doing plays, I got to imagine that's, you can't move the ship date, (laughs) right? And I got to imagine that's a little bit of a different kind of vibe when it comes to finishing, or maybe even the whole process, I don't know, but like... How was that going from that experience to to games? I really liked producing plays because um, you get to be in the audience when the thing's performed, and there's nothing better. I still haven't had a great, better experience with a, an audience, even though my audience is substantially larger than it was now. That you know now, but you don't. You're never in the room with them, or rarely in the room with them, experiencing it. And, you know, seeing them laugh and react to it, and feeling the rhythm. And sometimes, you know, especially when you're on stage as well, just feeling the rhythm of the. Like if it's a comic play, you know, getting in that groove of the rhythm of the thing is such a powerful feeling. And I get that when I write now. Like sometimes I tend to, I've started writing sort of like stream of consciousness, like like methody writing. And so I sit there with a my phone and I sit in the dark and I think about, you know, various sequences and I just write them out loud, you know, on the fly. And that's a really great feeling because at least you get the feeling of performance and rhythm. But I do miss that from plays, but you know it's also nice to have an audience. You know, when you do a play, you can have maybe a couple hundred people see it or something. You know, you right. do a, a game, potentially millions can see it, which is cool, but it's very abstract. That's totally true. What do you do whenever the millions see it and then they react to it in an abstract way? What do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean, Aaron? Oh, here we go. <laughs> the podcast just started, folks. No, so, <laughs> so like. <laughs> Bioshock has a lot of, like, if you're into any conspiracy theory, there's enough nuggets in there that you're like, what's going on? You know, like, and what do you do when people actually, like, in you know, think it's more than just a game? You know, that there's oh. commentary in this, like, you know? Oh, like they're reading something in that maybe wasn't yeah, intended? When it re- yeah, when it reaches back to you in that way, you know, I'm sure it has. Yeah, you get people, I mean, it, it varies. Like, I've had people... And these are usually very sad stories, you know, people with mental health issues who mm-hmm. really think the game's talking to them. Or, um, or we had one woman who wrote to me who was, um, and so it's very, it's kind of upsetting and, and scary for that person. Like I've seen you know, some people have a fan who's he, he he writes to me sort of these very sadly like incoherent things because I think he's probably suffering from schizophrenia, mm. but he he sort of works the game into his situation and. Um, mm. You know, so he just writes to me, and I can't really even understand what he's saying. But clearly, something's going on in him that makes sense and you know coheres together. And then I have fans who like, um, you know, who just um, the characters become very important. And I think we've all had that, right? There's all we all have relationships with fictional characters, right? You know, either growing up or as an adult, that you feel you kind of know somebody or you feel a real connection to somebody, and that person doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of a wonderful thing, but it, you know, uh-huh. it's 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 and it's. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that people, you know, connect to characters and sometimes too closely. But um, sometimes, you know, I don't know, art just fills that special, that hole sometimes yeah. for people, yeah. which is really nice. You know, something interesting that I think this was true in, in some of our games. I'm guessing way more true for like Bioshock and things that you do. But there's a lot of like 
world building and, and writing and character creation, all that kind of stuff that the player doesn't see all of it. Yeah. In fact, not all of it gets goes in the software. Some of it is on paper. Some of it is in the gestalt of the dev team. And the player has an experience with a either a subset of that or how it's distilled or how it's like, you know, put into the interactive experience that they have, mm-hmm. which leaves some imagination to fill for, for some players. Yeah, and, or connecting um, it, right? I think that's magical. I think that's really cool. Yeah, that's that's more of what I meant, like the Anne Ryan stuff, yeah. you know, like where that comes in and conspiracy theaters. I, I used to work, uh, conspiracy theories, I used to work with uh, Jordan Jordan Thomas. Yeah, very talented yeah, guy. So yeah. I worked, yeah, I worked with him for like a short period and he was the creative director at where, I, where we were working together and that was like the first time I truly saw like the creative direction process and like the in like that level of creativity. The, what I was referring to earlier when I was like this part, you know, like the question I asked was more related to the stuff that I would see the research and like where the story is going to be built from and like Anne Ryan, right? Like people people connect that with like political movements and things like this, yeah. and it's more of the inspiration that goes into a lot of the the creative part, like how. How much of that is inspired by all these conspiracy, like, you know, stories that are, like, in our culture, you know? Well, well I read, like, a kind of a scary... I'm way too online for somebody my age. Like, I read pretty much, like, everything. The and, comment um, section. You know, and I'll go... I'll, I'll spend... Yeah, I don't... You know, I don't really mind, honestly. I'll spend, like... There was this app called Clubhouse. Um, it's still around, I think. Um it's like you can go into these like chat rooms, but there it sort of has a stage and an audience structure, so you have to be invited. Oh, I've on seen the stage. those, yeah. And you know, I write about sort of extremist figures, so I would go into there's some very extremist rooms of all stripes, you know, extremely <laughs> yeah. left wing, extremely right wing, some and some crazy shit getting said. But I view it all, you know, I've always researched this stuff, so I like reading about or even. And it was nice. I can go in and be in the audience, and it was like walking to somebody's living room and random persons and hearing them argue about. The most crazy stuff, um, you know, it was great. It was great, you know, anthropological study, and you know, you were safe. You weren't, you know, you weren't like gonna like, you know, they're not gonna turn on you. And say, what are you doing here? Um, but I, I really found it fascinating. So I'll, I'll draw from. I'm a sort of a voracious reader of stuff and consumer of information, and so I'll basically every game I do is just like, what am I like? What am I interested in right now? And I had read, you know, with Ayn Rand, I had read. The Fountainhead. Everything so is Atlas Shrugged, even though Atlas Shrugged is more appropriate. I only read Hat like part of Atlas Shrugged, and I didn't really realize she was some kind of philosopher or something. I just thought it was some book. Yeah, neither did I. Oh, you read it? So did you read it? No, I didn't read it. No, friends and caught like in my. I wasn't in that level of English when we were in high school. Tim right. Tim Harris is is the one. I think he's he always telling desk. us to read. Yeah, Fountainhead. Yeah, and I, I, Ken, I gotta admit, I picked it up and I read like the first five, six pages, and I, f- I found it super chewy. I could, I couldn't. I, I that, that's where my. Yeah, I didn't know she was a philosopher. <laughs> you, you, too, you found it chewy from like a narrative standpoint, or from just the philosophy. You know, it, it's the, very, it was, it, it's very rigid. I, I had trouble parsing, like yeah. understanding the, like connecting the thoughts together. And I'm sure if I, I'm not sure. I'm guessing if I had the patience and I kind of got through, I would have. I would have picked the threads. If but you play, I, if I you play Bioshock, you kind of get the idea. Like it, we really, very, you know, we adapted it. You know, Andrew Ryan's opening <laughs> speech is basically a summary of Rand, um, and I found it interesting, mostly because it was sort of, I mean, it's it's cartoonish. The book is cartoonish in the sense that she stacks the deck in favor of her characters because the characters who have the right philosophy you know, are, are winning. beautiful and <laughs> handsome and smart and everybody, want, all the women want to be with the guy and all the men want to be him and vice versa with the women. So he, she stacks the deck. So I tried to write it as like, well, what if somebody who didn't, was neutral about the philosophy, try to tell it fairly, you know? And that's where Rapture came from was, and any, I think you can do that pretty much any philosophy. There's sort of the idealized version, right? Which the writers, you know, if they're a philosopher, they tend to write that version, you know? Like, you know, you know, whether it's Ryan writing, you know, The Fountainhead or Marx writing Das Kapit, um, you know, The Communist Manifesto, they're going to envision, a, a, you know, it working really well. And I was right. like being like, well, <laughs> life's a little more complicated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but I try to be that's honest to it, you know, yeah. to what I think would actually happen if real people got involved. So is that is that kind of like the was that the origin for I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, how do you how do you write a game story? Yeah, 
it's, is that where it started? Ayn Rand is that was that sort of like primary inspiration no, for thinking about like no, it, it's sort of it's like a giant pastiche. Like I think people think like I get the question a lot of like, well, you know, is the game the same game you shipped the game you originally thought of? I'm like, well, originally thought of. I mean, you gotta have this experience. Game is like you have one iota of an idea, and then you just build on that, and then you kiss all the frogs, you know, and you throw away the one the frogs, and you and you keep the princes. And it gets it evolves very organically over time. Um, so I think we had at that point. I think I read Atlas Shrugged. I read Fountainhead probably in about 1999 or 2000. And I didn't. We didn't make Bioshock two years later. But we didn't have. I wasn't. Rand wasn't the thing I had in mind at the beginning. I was sort of casting around in my head for, you know, I had inherited on System Shock Two. I inherited an IP intellectual property, right? But I didn't have access to that anymore. So I'm like, well. So what's this intellectual property gonna be like? What's the world like? I, I didn't have you know, the Citadelization and stuff like that, and Showdown, all these great things that I inherited on System Shock Two, and um, so I just sort of, you know, cast around into my head. It was a mix of Rand. It was a mix of me growing up. You know, my family was you know a Jewish family, and you know my grandmother was in Queens, and they were all in New York. You know, sort of New York Jews, and very much reflected that that sort of aesthetic of my growing up in that period because I'm also I grew up in New York I was born in 66 so you know the the architecture was still there very much there and you know and the feel vibe of New York was very much there and very much what you feel in Rapture there would be no Rapture if I if I didn't grow up near New York I probably you know if I didn't yeah, know right. New York as well as I did it's a very Manhattan um, you know place so I just sort of transferred all that and it just you know kind of felt its way in so is that kind of like you start with the the nugget there was the world no, the nugget was really the big, the mechanic, not the big daddy and little sisters per se, like not the, you know, the AI who has the goodies and the AI is protecting the character with the goodies. It was just a character with a character they protected and enemies would attack them and this one character would protect the, the vulnerable character. And I watched, I got that from watching a nature show. I was watching um, a show where there's like, you know, the mama deer was protecting the baby deer from the wolf or something. And... I was watching, I'm like, oh, this the drama of this is so clear, it doesn't even need any words, right? We all get it right away. So I said, what if I could transfer this drama in an AI setup between these three characters? And I'd never seen that yeah. before. What? That's really cool. And that yeah. eventually became the big daddy little sister. That's yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. Why'd you name it Rapture? Why is it named Rapture? I was gonna just guess. Well, it was it, it was well what's your guess? What's your guess? <laughs> Tell me your guess. Okay, so this is kind of what I was getting at before <laughs> earlier. Which is like you start to think like, oh, why did he name it Rapture? And then you start to take your tool set, all the stuff you've seen, and you make an assumption of, and this is mine, that those people were saved from another bad place. And they're, create, and they're kind of creating a utopia, but it was like a false Rapture. Yeah, it, it, it relates to being rapture, you know, the rapture. But it, yeah, it was a bit ironic for Ryan because, of course, he's, he's, a, um, you know, he's an atheist. But I think he was both meant it literally, but is also kind of his little joke at religion, yeah. As well, but you're—I think you're right. You're right on the money. Okay, cool. So I'm watching the right conspiracy videos on YouTube. You're watching the right see. conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're doing plays. You go to Vassar and get a degree in drama, or you study drama. You come out to LA. I read this on your Wikipedia. Came out to LA, but then you ended up at. Looking Glass. How, but like, how did those dots get connected? Yeah, so I got like an agent very young and a manager because I had sent a somehow got my screenplay to some agent, and um, then I got starting attention when I was still in college from like film studios, and I went out there. I graduated from college, went out there, and I thought I was going to clean up, you know, like oh, I'm this young hot shot. And, um, you know, they flew me out first class from, like, my college dorm, you know, and I was like, oh. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. I must, be, I must be really important. And then it, I did one rewrite of a screenplay for Paramount, and then it just sort of my career just fizzled. I couldn't get another job. And I didn't. For some reason, I had all this attention, and I just could not translate into career. So I basically, for five or six years, just did sort of random jobs. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then... I ended up, you know, be approaching my 30th birthday and I was like, God, am I, you know, I thought I was going to be this creative person. You know, I thought I, you know, we all, I'm sure you all had that when you were a kid, you wanted a creative career and it was so exciting. And I thought I had my shot and I blew it. I really did. But then I was like, well, what else out there is there that you could, oh, 
I try to go back in my plays. I put on a play in New York when in my late 20s, and that didn't go very well. You can't really make money doing plays. And so I'm like, what can I do? And I'm like, well, I've been playing video games my whole life since there were video games. You know, I've been playing video games. You know? um, I don't know how old you guys are, but, you know, I'm, I'm 56. And, you know, I remember when video games started. Yeah, 53. 53. So you're, you're Atari 2600. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, what was your entry? Now, well, I remember playing like Pong and stuff in the arcade, but I remember even before that, these sort of electrical and mechanical games in the arcade, you know, like, um, you know, like I remember in Jaws, like the thing where you're shooting, there's an arcade for a second, you see the guy shooting a little gun against like, it's a bunch uh-huh. of frame, like lights yeah. are lighting up behind frames of animation of its painted <laughs> frames of animation of the shark, really crude stuff. Yeah, but the moment video games, you know, came in, I was just completely hooked and I was like, well, I'm like, somebody must make those, right? I didn't really understand. And I got a copy of a magazine of next gen magazine i think it was yeah at the time and i there's an ad for this company looking at us and i loved ultima underworld and i love system shock one and i was like man there's a job for a designer what's a designer do and um <laughs> it was such, alex you know it's such a it such a young time in the industry it wasn't really an, an industry back then you know yeah. it was very very small and nobody yeah. had really heard of it had no cultural impact really at the time and but I loved games, and I I got it, and I applied for the job, and I got it. That's that's awesome. Did were we all going to say our ages? Because I didn't say mine. Forty-seven. <laughs> yeah. you're, Come on, I think you're twenty. You're twenty-two. <laughs> I'm twenty-two. <laughs> but I have a question uh, with what yeah. where you just start. I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think that that dark time or empty time, the doldrum time of your life, that you draw back to it, it you have gone back to it in the future to remind yourself that like. I was there, now I'm here, let's keep going. Kind of like a fuel source, kind of? Or am I wrong? Uh, no, I think a lot. Whenever I see, I'm a very fortunate and pretty happy person now. I think about what my life, and when I see people who are very unhappy or very grumpy or nasty or mean, I do wonder like, if I hadn't been able to have a creative life, I probably would have been pretty unhappy too. So mm-hmm. it gives mm-hmm. me a nice degree of patience for people who aren't very nice to me sometimes because I think it's hard you know it's I'm it's we're so lucky to have a good life in creativity I mean it's it's the biggest I couldn't ask for anything more in life than to have a life where I get to go to work every day and look forward to it and not watch the clock um, and I do think about the Ken who that didn't happen to a lot and I wonder what I'd be like and you know what I would have done but it's hard to imagine because I'm, I'm I love what I do so much it's good to remind ourselves that uh, we get to make a living, have a career making games. <laughs> well, I think, cool. I think those times cool. are important. Like I, I, I think a lot of people that had that moment in life at some point become successful if they get out of it. You know what I mean? Because they're like, yeah. you know, you hear that story a lot, you know, where it's like they were living in a van. They were like, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And then it's like, boom. It prepares you. I think I was kind of shocked when I was young because I had so much, you know, attention when I was younger. As a young writer, I won all these contests, you know, and and then it didn't work. And I think, you know, when I try to be a screenwriter, and I think that was very valuable because it tells you, like, you're not entitled to anything. You know, you've got to. Yeah. It was very humbling. Yes, it was very humbling. And I think that served me well. And it made me say, the only way I'm going to make this happen if I just if I just don't quit at it, like we almost ran out of business very early on in our development cycle. We lost a project. And I remember I was on a run one day and it was so bad. Like I had no money with three of us that started with no investment of any kind. We just had the three of us. Um, and I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. I have to quit. I have to quit. And then I remember this voice was saying me, well, if you don't quit now, this is when most people quit. If you don't quit, then you're already improving your chances of odds, even over people who are more talented than you because they quit because they're going to be top. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't quit. That, and a month right. later, we got System Shock 2. But that was a That's tough the month. end of Act 2 right there. Yeah. 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 And then you roll right into Act 3. I love that story. Just that little anecdote. Like, I, I had a very similar experience when we started Bungie. We did, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote the first game. Eh, almost broke even. Jason wrote the second game. Eh, almost broke even and i and i don't know if you said you were on a run did you say you were out on a run run. yeah 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 yeah. are you are you a runner yeah yeah. still running yep awesome i'm doing the uh, chicago half marathon next month 
Oh, he tells great. me every uh, day. Every day I get it. <laughs> every day. It's worth bragging about. I'm just I'm just training for a marathon. Yeah, bro. Yeah. Well, so I remember I'm in I'm in my basement apartment in Hyde Park and I'm on my by the little exercise bike and the fax machine rang. We had a fax machine. It's how old we are. And we got our we had our first distributor order for this was for Pathways. Pathways and Darkness. Darkness. It was like Yeah. 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 And it was uh it was like the first, you know real order and i was like oh wait maybe we're gonna make it <laughs> and i was i had that I, conversation with myself so many times it's like oh i tried this once didn't work i tried this twice it didn't work how many times are we gonna try this you know it's so funny that and, people uh, don't realize like you know they're no ma- prop very close to no marathon or or or, or, or halo and very close to no bioshock <laughs> because it's, it's hard starting out right? it is hard yeah it's really hard yeah. and you just gotta hang in there there, have you heard of this speech called The Last Lecture? It's um, Yeah, some guy who passed away who said it, I think. Yes, it was yeah. a professor at Carnegie Mellon who started their, that uh, entertainment degree there. Yeah, It's super impactful if you ever want to watch it. But he, he has this part about how those walls that come up or those challenges that come up, they, they thin... The, they thin the herd, you know? I it's was like going to say, they separate those, the wheat from the chaff, yeah. Exactly. Like if you can make it through those, if you if you have the drive or the persistence, yeah. the will, the spirit, or whatever to make it through those, then that just gives you such a bigger chance of succeeding because most people aren't going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really un- failing is really unpleasant, but it's 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 the whetstone which you sharpen the tool, right? Yeah. Um, That's right. And it sucks. It, it sucks. It's easy to look back and romanticize it, you know. But at the time, holy shit, yeah. is it's terrible. Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. Oh, so I keep trying to interrupt you because I'm excited because there's like multiple <laughs> tiers to this, right? There's like level one, then there's level two, then there's level three, then there's level four, then there's the boss level, and yeah. then you ship your first game, you know, and it's just like, what? <laughs> and then it happens again and it just keeps getting harder. It's like new level, new devil. It just keeps getting harder and yeah. harder and harder and harder. Yeah. yeah. So was Thief the first game that you worked on? Yeah, it was, I, I was working on two games when I started Looking Glass. A, a Star Trek Voyager game that got canned and then Thief. But that was the one I remember because I got to work with Doug Church and we've got to really, I was coming out of the very, it didn't, nothing existed when I started on that. So he and I basically just were brainstorming a hundred different ideas and eventually one of them became Thief. So it's pretty lucky. I got to work with Doug. What a great first project. But did that start with a nugget of stealth of like, what if it was hiding and not run a gun or? Sort of. It was like a whole different range of games. I did, there's some documentary around Thief where I talk about that um, Noclip did that. I talk about like all the different games that we, I pitched because I would come up, I'm sure you have this experience, I'd go and I write like a five or 10 page design pitch. I come up with the name for the thing and I, you know, I'd write the summary, you know, the controls, all that. And I would show it to Doug and, I get all excited, and he'd be like, "Eh, I don't know." And he'd like toss it, and then another <laughs> one, and then another one, and another like whole fully formed ideas, uh, but ideas, right? And you know, we'll talk about ideas versus execution, you know, in a second. But there were ideas. But I was young, and I'm like, God, he really, I'm just failing here. I just keep coming with these ideas, and he throws them out, and then I'd go, you know, and I'd wait for a few days, and I'd write up something new, and eventually. But the thing that kept coming back, we kept coming back to, was wouldn't it be cool? Because at the time, for the most part. Maybe with one exception, which is like Metal Gear, the first Metal Gear. When enemies either were aware of you or not aware of you, right? And when they're aware of you, they're fully aware of you. And they, they were, you had to kill them or die, basically. And we talked about idea, wouldn't it be cool if enemies said, if one enemy said, hey, is somebody there? You know, rather than being aware of you, they could become suspicious. And we started brainstorming this concept of like this interaction with using AI, you know, AI, you know, the, 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 vo- the voice of the various AIs who, to give you information about their awareness state about you. And that was, and we, through all the different iterations, we kept, that idea kept sticking. And then eventually Paul Narath, who ran Looking Glass, came in and said, what if you made a game about a thief? And I was like, great, because figured the boss was saying it and we'd have to do it. And Doug was like, ah, I don't know. Um, but Doug was always like that. You know, he's brilliant, he's brilliant. But, you know, I think Doug didn't like necessarily of deciding what to do rather than he liked the process more. But eventually we decided upon that. And, um, you know, we just took that idea about aware AI awareness and we just, you know, pushed on it and, um, you know, try to make it cool. And cool he did. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting how like a little mechanic like that seems so... Um when you first play it 
it seems obvious, you know, like, oh, yeah, of course. But they don't see, people don't see how much thought and iteration and, like, and like now we take for take all these mechanics for granted. We were talking about this before with I think it was Tim Schafer. He brought up a lot of mechanics that nowadays you, they just seem so obvious. And it's like no, there's they didn't exist. Like we invented this mechanic, like being suspicious yeah. to even losing suspicion. You know, like or building yep. up the star level in uh, your wanted level in uh, yep. Grand Theft Auto. GTA, that kind of thing. Yep, yep. Like it yep. seems so obvious now. It's like oh yeah, obviously. Yeah. Or the reload mechanic Cliff came up with in, in Years of War, you know, like like there's all these little things, or the or the regenerating shields in Bungie in um, in Halo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are things yeah. that become just de facto and standard. I mean, we copied the regenerating shields for Infinite, um, and you see it. Or back to Halo again. Sorry, not to not to blow too much smoke in the Bungie direction, but <laughs> you know, you know, the control scheme on a controller for a first person shooter, right? You know, these are things that yeah. I remember playing the first time I played a game with mouse look. It was like, oh, that's how to do it, right? There are these moments where you're like, oh, yeah, of course. That's the way to or do it. Or the iron sights in Call of Duty. We tried to pr- pretend that mouse, mouse Look didn't exist for probably a year because we all, we all grew up playing uh, keyboard, just 100%, yes. like Marathon. We would just play keyboard. And then we would we implemented mouse control, but we never really used it until we started meeting people like trade shows or whatever, who would play with the mouse and they were way better than us. Way Just better. Yeah. Way better. <laughs> no, we had, we had like, a huge argument at, at, at Looking Glass on Thief because if you play System Shock 1 or Ultimate Underworld, the control scheme is radically different. In fact, there's no mouse look. You you would literally use the keyboard or you'd actually click on an icon at the top of your screen to say lean or, or crouch or something. And then you would point <laughs> where you wanted to on your screen and shoot at that point with your mouse. With your mouse. So... It was very hard to get people to buy into Mouse Luck on Thief. It was very, very difficult because, like you said, they get they get used to playing it a certain yep, way. Yeah, they get they get in. It's hard pattern. to teach all the horse new tri- all the new tricks. Yeah, they're gonna have it. People get into patterns. Um, you, are you, I think you maybe you had some thoughts. You you alluded to idea versus execution. Oh yeah, I mean that's something I'm sure you guys experience. You know, a lot of young people write to me like, "Oh, I have an amazing idea. Like, how do I pitch it to a game studio?" And <laughs> every time you make video games oh i have this idea like with chess, idea. but you play as a chess like it's like <laughs> it's the best yeah, and yeah. it's and it's completely useless right like any idea <laughs> yeah, any right. idea can be you know brilliant or terrible based upon the execution but execution yeah. is everything anybody in the audience if you want to pitch an idea like that to a game developer the trick to to getting that green light is to just put a 10 million dollar check in the envelope with the game pitch. <laughs> That'll do. That's about the only way it's going to happen, I think, right? No, it's it, it, it's hard, I think, because young, because you know, people get ideas, and sometimes people carry around ideas for years and years. And I'm like, you need to, you need to be able to come up with ideas at a steady state. That's just like the kindling wood, right? For 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 making games, it's you got to carry it out, and you got to see how wrong you are. There is no game idea that meets you know the audience and doesn't get radically changed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I talk about iteration all the time, which is a pretty simple concept, but that's really, that's how, in my mind, you take something that's at here and you get it just yeah. somewhere really good is you got you to gotta iterate on it. You got to keep improving. Yeah. yeah. So Ghost Story, the current studio, I've read a little bit about Irrational, the transition. Is it the same studio, same people, different studios, a name, kind of rebranding? Or was, is there, a, I mean, is there like, anything there? Or is it just whatever? It's like the ship of Theseus, you know, like, yeah, there's a tons of the same people. So, you know, people, we have a ton of people who worked on Bioshock 1, who worked on Bioshock Infinite, you know, different studio name and different location. But, we, you know, we have a very similar mission. Um, so I think fans who like our previous games are going to be very interested in what we're working on because it's, there's some, you know, definitely share some shared DNA. And the people, you know, we haven't we haven't really, um, you know, some of the key people are, you know, are, are veterans. Some people are new. It's a mix. Um, it's a mix. We're very different. We work with a lot of outsourcing groups too. And what's really been fun is people who left Irrational, you know, when we cl- when we closed when the studio got closed, now have their own company. So we've hired them to work with us, you know, but they get to be entrepreneurs now rather than employees because we work with awesome. outside firms. Um, Can I ask you a question? I, this is not to put you on the spot either. And I shouldn't preface the question, but, but, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want to say a long time yeah. ago because I, I'm not lying. 
I was sitting watching YouTube and you came up in a video and you and it was like a coming up next, Ken Lee was gonna say something about something and then they showed like this quick soundbite of you saying, <laughs> And I'm never I'm gonna stop making games after this and then like or something and then or was no, that I No, I have never said never that. said that? Okay. Never. Okay, yeah. I I'm fought glad. it. I fought it, but I've never said <laughs> fought it. it. Um, it's a Ma- Mandela effect. It's a Mandela. Effect. Every time, every time, I'm like, my next thing is not games. Every time, and okay, every time I imagine. It's games, so, what, yeah. what, what is it going to be? What do you What do you think it's going to be? I, that's it. You know, that's I don't. It. it you don't know. Not, yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, I I sit around. Usually, like I've gone through a whole like uh, arc. You know, that is yeah. that has. Uh, that has had you know all the emotions in it and i'm like hey you know next thing maybe i should try something simple maybe i should maybe i should work on like a productivity app or like, let's make a, a new social media thing or something <laughs> like that you know it's like easy something easy and then and then i'm like uh boring <laughs> no look games are i get the i've definitely been down the road i'm gonna try something simpler next i've definitely done that um and then i end up <laughs> getting excited about some stupid challenge and you know here we are years later yep i think that games are such an interesting space to work in because it's not really fully formed yet you know when you work in movies people kind of know how to make movies you know yeah how to make tv shows they know how to do comic books but we're still really figuring out how to make games um, oh yeah it's still going to change it changes all the time it changes since you know i started in the industry you started in the industry you know three of us but i like being one of the early ones and because it's fun to see where it's going where and i think also because it's new and we're still figuring it out you don't have as many sort of the executive class of management people like you have at film studios right where you have just so many it has to pass so many people every idea there's so many stakeholders that you, it's hard to innovate where games are still just tons of innovation happening all the time yeah yeah if you if you find the right ecosystem for that i yes. think there are some yes. that are harder some that are easier but i think you're absolutely right and a perfect segue for me to ask what can you tell, what can you say about what you're doing now because i think what i'm imagining maybe this is right maybe this is not i don't know but what i'm imagining is you love creating these worlds telling these stories and my imagining is that you're making something where people can have a personal kind of experience that's their own story in a world but yes. i don't know if that's right what can you say? I'll say this. I'll say this. The things that I think our games haven't done a great job of is recognizing the player's role in the experience and rewarding that role in their decisions in that space. That's a really hard problem to do that right. So I'm not going to make any claims or statements about it, but it's certainly been a focus of mine is, you know, how do you make the player feel recognized and like it's theirs? Right. And that's about all I can say about it, but that's what I've been, you know, and that means reacting to the player. And that's, um, you know, something I've been and paying attention and then giving them a sense that the game is, is aware of them and, and paying attention to this because they, that they matter. Yeah. Yeah. We've almost had a game, you know, Bioshock, when we sort of almost had made a meta joke about how you don't matter in that world, right? But once you make that joke, it's harder. <laughs> I found that tricky on Infinite. It's like, well, we made that joke. <laughs> okay, we're going to make it again, you know, but it's but I didn't know how to solve I didn't know what to do about the problem at that point. Yeah, no, you're right. Like most most games that have a story, you play uh, a part. You, you know, yeah. part that's created for you, not by yeah. you. That 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 seems like your experience with theater maybe maybe that uh, has been f- maybe formative for thinking about that, maybe. Well, I think theater is very instructive for making games. The two things that are most influential on me in making games was actually, besides games themselves, were, uh, you know, theme parks, like especially like Disney World and um, theater, because you, you, you're presenting a narrative, but you don't control where the audience looks, right? And it's even more so in a theme park. Like Walt Disney World is extremely carefully designed, so you, you pay attention to what it wants you to pay attention to, but yeah. it doesn't grab your head like a movie and point it where it wants it to look. That's a huge affordance you have in a movie or TV show, and we just don't have. And I don't really do big cutscenes generally. You know, I, I like to keep the player moving in first person, so I try to do a lot of environmental storytelling. We try to do a lot of that. But um, theater was very helpful because again, you gotta, you know, how do you show the audience where to look on stage? You use lighting, you use isolation, you use silhouettes, you use color isolation. 
use you know how upstage or downstage you are you know there's all these techniques to use and we have similar techniques for games is how do you make the mm-hmm. player make sure that they see that thing yeah. when you don't control where their head looks yeah are you yeah. are you yeah. in staying in first person would you say like are you that's your favorite way to present the game to players or have you considered it's, it's, other it's very immediate i made non-first person games like we did these two games called freedom force versus the third reich and Fre- freedom force and freedom force the third reich which were sort of the top-down strategy games what I like about first person gives you a sense of discovering things in the world without any filter. You know, it's just you looking. And so the kind of stories I tell also, it's the way to get closest to objects in the world. Like in a third person game or a top down game, you can't really get close to objects in the world. You're just by the nature of the camera. Where in first person, you can really, you know, get really close to things. And so the kind of detail you can put in and hope the player notices is pretty high. So I, I like I like the genre a lot, even though it's not by far it's not the thing I play most. I don't I play a bunch of them, but I, t- I don't really play multiplayer shooters. But I, I tend to like like um, like strategy games more than like first person shooters. But I play oh, yeah. you know I played a ton of them to the end. I mean like you know I played all the Halo games and I played um, you know DSX and I played um, Dishonored and I played I mean I played Call of Duty games too. I really I enjoy them, but I just I think I just like how close it gets you to the action. When you're talking about tricks to or techniques to direct the player's eye, yep. I even like so important in games because it has not, not just a, the, the presentation aesthetic, but also the the design, you know? Yep. Like you, you need a player to look a, a certain way because that's part of the solution for the gameplay or something like that. That's, uh, that's really interesting. And audio logs. Audio logs are awesome. Oh yeah, they're so good. Aaron's always talking about audio logs, and it's I think like, it's because of you. I think so. I, it's my <laughs> I, did, I did not invent them. To be clear, I didn't invent them. No, sure, they were really good in Bioshock. Yeah, they're really good in Bioshock. They're really fun to write, you know, because yeah. they're really like they're like soliloquies and plays. Yeah. They're very confessional, yeah. and they're really fun. So I just sit down and I sit in a chair in the dark and I just think about the character I get in this place and I just record me doing one yeah, like, awesome. like a character. And then, you know, I send it to my poor staff who has to transcribe it. But I, lo- I they're, they're really fun to write. They're one of my favorite things to write. Yeah. They're a breeze compared to most other things. I love that sort of part of world building where it's sort of like you're, you're filling in gaps and it's, mm-hmm. it's maybe, maybe it's not essential, but it's like extra rewarding for, yeah. Where there's callbacks like content. later, you know, like you find a log, and then like you play for a couple hours, and then it's like, oh, there's that thing that the audio log I found, like you know, is that there? That's the thing that they were talking about. Yeah, it makes the world feel like. I mean, we didn't have a way to make people present in the game, so mm-hmm. the audio logs were our performers, you know. Yeah, and um, it was way cheaper than like you know, like, the infinite <laughs> we decided to put all the characters in the game pretty much, and that was way more complicated than just having them dead and you find this little tape recorder. Yeah, <laughs> it added so much. And you know, one of my favorite things too is how you set up the audio log. So you'd find one sometimes that the room would be like something had happened here, and then you'd listen to the audio log, and it would kind of describe like, oh, you know, and it was, and at the same time you're trying to solve a puzzle or something, and yeah. I love that stuff. It's my favorite part. It really fi- it filled in a ton of blanks for the audience because yeah. you can only so much you can show. You know, we we call shove those scenes. We call because I'm pretentious. We call them mise en scène. It's a, it's a French term. You know, you you make the scene basically, and you try to tell the story visually. But having that audio stuff really helps bring that story home. Sometimes where you yeah. wouldn't be able to get just out of the visual. I know you were saying you you do the scratch audio yourself, but have you put yourself in any of the games? Yeah, I'm in like. Um, in Bioshock, I play the, um, you probably don't remember, but there's a vending machine it's called the Circus of Values, and I play him, um, and I play a couple characters, I think, like one of the one of Cohen's disciples, I play one of the, Co- the Frozen guy. And I, yeah, I usually play a role in every game, um, small role. I'm not, I'm not an actor, really. I, I, um, <laughs> oh, that's cool. I'm not, I know enough to be dangerous, but um, I, you know, I tend to like <laughs> to hire the, the pros to do most of it. <laughs> awesome. I was curious... Um... Like what's your what's your day to day like? Like what what are the things that you that you like doing? You know on uh, you know current project. I imagine you're. I don't know if you have somebody who's helping you run the studio and the, the different crafts and all of that. But yeah, remote or not remote too. That's the other thing. That's what I wanted to add in because Alex asked you that question and it's are you the remote work from home thing? Like where does that fit in? Yeah, we've that? been remote since sort of COVID started and we found that actually it's been a big time saver for us. Well, it's been a big benefit for a couple of reasons. 
one is just the time of like commuting and stuff, you know, saves up. But also we've been able to make the studio international. Like that we don't really care where somebody lives now. So I've got people working on the project who are, you know, in Austria and in Australia um, and, you know, UK and all over the place. And it's in Vietnam. Um, and it's great. For me, it's nice, too, because you just don't have to. Um, you, know, my, you ask my day to day, you know, for better or for worse, my day is like sitting out in front of my computer in the morning and just doing Zoom meetings or writing or this kind of stuff. Um, I spend a lot of time in this chair. Do you still have time to write, though? You, you, you're, are you writing I am. Actively. I do write. Uh, yeah, I write a, a lot of it. it. I am. Yeah, it's hard to find the time, but I, I think that if you don't have a very specific deliverables on the game, you can get very out of touch with the game, and you don't want to be the guy, you know, creatively driving the product, but you don't have any skin in the game. So, you know, I am very low level involved with a lot of things, but very specifically, I, I work with the writing team, and they all either write. You know, my stuff, my own, or I tend to go and review and rewrite tons of stuff they do. I direct the actors. Um, so I like to be really, really low level involved in that stuff. That's great that you have it set up where you can do that. I think, you know, for, for me, I always struggled with A, I got lucky and hired people that were way better, like way better programmers than me, et cetera. But uh, I always struggled to find the right way to do what you're saying, like inject myself into the project, like to be checked. Like when we started industrial toys, I was writing UI code, not super essential, but I was checking stuff into Perforce and it, I had the, the pulse, you know, it keeps you honest about where the game yeah. is at, you know, cause you're forced yeah. to interact with it at a very low level. So I think it's good yep. that you did that. Cause I, I think a lot of people, you know, get Peter principled out, right. They, they end up getting promoted beyond their skill set and, I kind of found out where my skill set. I'm not a guy who's going to lead like a bunch of teams or a guy who's going to be some executive somewhere. I'm a guy who can be creative leading a product, but I need to be there, writing, directing, in the, you know, in the, in the, and it makes it hard because I can't work on more than one thing at a time really very much. I, I have done it a couple of times. It's been, a, it's, I've done work with three games at once, but um, I find I'm best when I can really just focus my energy. All right, Ken. Thanks for joining us. Nice meeting you, Ken. It's great to finally meet you and chat. Nice to meet you. See you. Thanks, and we'll see you around. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Ken, folks. Now you see why I was nervous. Um, <laughs> Wait, why? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. He's a really chill dude. I remember uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the interview, and I got excited. I was, like, interrupting you all, and, and I really think a lot of people take this for granted and it is and you and i have talked about it and i you you tend to see this with people that run marathons right like they're the, th the thing that makes a marathon so hard is you're constantly fighting the next level like you there is like la being tired is a spectrum right it's like it's a gradient and it mm -hmm. ends at death <laughs> it's oh gosh you know what I mean? it's like you get so tired you just die <laughs> But yeah, you know what I mean? And like, that's what a marathon is. And that is what it's like making stuff. Anything. You, uh, yes. You know? Yes. You have an idea. And that e ideas are a dime a billion. Uh, you know, like, not even a dozen. They're so easy to come up with. Mm -hmm. But once you start making the thing, it's like, I've done something where like, I've put something out. Not even put it out. I'm like halfway through it. And someone will go, that's stupid. And it's like, at that moment, that's your first, that's your first that's level one. That's your first wall. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? I don't care if they think that's stupid. And then you just keep going. And then the next one is like, ow, I hurt my finger. I should just quit. You know, like It's like not even related, right? You had a fight with a friend or a loved one. And it is those little like battles every day, all the time, and just showing up, you know, and doing it. And then finishing mm -hmm. it. And then, yeah. And then even after you finish, that's the thing about games that everyone takes for granted, in my opinion. I'm just saying that. That's probably not true. But I take it for granted so I shouldn't say everyone, is that once you finish the game, you're not done. Especially nowadays, live service, yeah. updates. Like, you'll publish a game in June, and you're working on it six years later in June, <laughs> in July. You know what I mean? If you're lucky, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you got to show up just as much then as you did, you know? It's like constant, and it, it really does wear on. That's why it's so good to see the, the industry mature to the point where, like, humans are valued again. That, But those battles still exist, you know? Well, I think it's beyond 
just video games. I think that is a good message for anybody in life who has some drive or some ambition is to not give up. I mean, that was uh, that was Patrick Curry and I always used to joke about, um, you know, advice to entrepreneurs. Uh, the the number one piece of advice for create creating and building a successful company is don't go out of business which is like duh that's stupid um but it's that concept of pushing through those walls of finding a way to get to the next step yeah it's just it's so easy for people to say no it is you know and what you do with that yeah what do you do with that oh not even just i'm saying no to myself but like hey here's here's the thing and you know what you get back is no. You know, it might not just be the word no. It might be I don't like that, or that's not right for me, or or you're the worst. <laughs> you're never gonna <laughs> make it. You, is that what you usually get? <laughs> I talked about that before with the with I posted some video on Reddit, and they like the the moderators destroyed it, but they didn't just destroy it. They told me what makes it better, and I had to make a decision. I either take their feedback and improve. Or, or yeah. I cry and downvote their stupid comments. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, oh I, did, I like. I, don't you, you know, don't want to? You don't want to say that out loud, buddy. This is a, <laughs> no, no, I'm recorded. gonna. I think it's man. I love that. That's why I got excited. That was the best. other quote that I was thinking of picking for the beginning. Was you know, uh, Ken was talking about how he wanted to work in Hollywood, and he came out to Hollywood, and he. He worked on a screenplay for Paramount, and then the work started to dry up. And then he asked himself, can I do this? Am I going to have a career? I thought I was a creative person. And he had to push through that for years. And it, and yeah. I actually didn't know this, that he didn't start working in games until he was 30, which in that generation is, you know, a lot A lot of us started younger, you know, and, and yeah, like he 16, had the persistence yeah. to stick with it to make himself a career being creative and an exceptional career being creative. So that's yeah. a great example. That And that last lecture that I was talking about in the beginning, there's many examples of that concept in there, too. I try to tell my kids that, you know, you're going to hear no a lot and you have to decide how to navigate that. Don't let that stop you. Yeah, and sometimes no's are nudges. Like, they're nudges in the right direction. Because, like, if I was like, you know what? I want to be an MMA fighter. You could be like, Aaron, no, dude. <laughs> right? Don't die, yeah. dude. You know? like That's but, true. You know what I mean? That, you know what I mean? That, yes. Yeah. That's not to say that every idea is a good idea, you know? Or everything yeah, is great. <laughs> right. But also... Not. But the, the thing is, though, he's not, a, he's not writing film. He's doing games. And that period nudged him in the right direction like you know what i'm saying like it was it was a no yeah many no's but they were nudging him in the correct direction and he didn't give yeah. up he didn't he didn't turn into a street you know oh he, he didn't go get an accounting or, job you know or yeah. something yeah you know what i mean like i just went straight to the end you know i should have done it. Like, yeah he didn't get a job as an accountant <laughs> Right or a teacher, uh, which teachers are good, but like just like oh, I'm never gonna make I, it. He'd be really, he'd be a really good I teacher. I think he'd be a really think. good teacher too. Teachers yeah. are great. I didn't mean it like that. I yeah. mean he didn't take a parallel job. Accountants are great too. I know a lot of great accountants. Yeah, like um, now we're like oh my no, everybody's great. Yeah. <laughs> Another interesting thing I noticed here is like I have three episodes in a row now with Tim Schaefer, Raf Coster, and Ken Levine. They are all writers. They all. They, they all have come up. Oh, it, you know, Tim's got Tim uh, does did computer science a bit. You know, his list programming. But they're all writers. You know, Coster's a poet, dude. I know. Poet. And a lot of the folks that we've been talking to over the course of this year got their start as engineers. You know, like you remember when we were talking to Josh Way about the early Midway days. There were there was no such thing as a designer. It was just a programmer, and they had some artists, and they figured everything out. And it wasn't until later that the whole job description of a designer came about even later that there was such a thing as a producer in games yeah now there's like 15 designer jobs like yeah. narrative designer level designer yeah but know? games i mean it's interesting you know that games can come from anywhere you know ken talked a little bit about bioshock the original sort of like the genesis of that project the nugget that things were built around was the mechanic of somebody protecting another character can you make that was my favorite game? part yeah yeah there's this this three entity interaction of a vulnerable characters a character trying to protect that character and a third character having to make a choice you know kind of thing which i thought was really interesting especially coming from ken who's a writer who we might think is you know oh he started with the creation of this really interesting cool uh cyberpunk looking world world you know 
But it wasn't exactly that way. Steampunk. It's steampunk. Yeah, steampunk. Sorry, steampunk. I'll edit that out. Just say no, no, don't edit it out. <laughs> Leave the part where I save you. I'm the I'm the mother deer right now, okay. saving the baby Thank deer you. from the crowd. Thank you. What did I say? You said did cyberpunk. I say cyberpunk? Yeah. Okay. Steampunk, isn't it? It's steampunk yeah. gothic or something. Yeah, steampunk is sort of like the, the retro stuff's powered it's by steam. Steam and like it's bronze, yeah. copper. All right. Okay. Don't edit that out. Yeah, okay. Well, I got my editing tools all primed and ready. (laughs) So yeah, okay. So yeah, I think I think you're right. The 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 thing that's interesting about that, though, in my opinion, is that those little concepts they seem trivial to people, but a lot of times, great works are based on these these little concepts that we, you know, like the underdog story. You know, person can't make it. They struggle, they make it. That's a very simple formula. You've seen, if you ever watched the movie Rudy, like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. like right? <laughs> you're crying at the end. I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's, right, it's a really simple formula. And I think I think it's interesting because I never thought of that as a con, like that concept. Like I know a lot of other ones, you know, they're the, the obvious ones. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not an obvious one to me. It's like, oh yeah, that's a really cool. You could probably build an entire story around that, you know? Huh, you hey, have you did like a whole movie. <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was cool. All right, well, thank you for joining us for another week of Fourth Curtain. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ken Levine. I did, and we will see you next time. Next time, see ya. Thank you for listening to the Fourth Curtain podcast. To get a peek at upcoming episodes or to send in questions to the show, visit our site at thefourthcurtain.com. And be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. By the way, I, I also want to clarify yeah. something, too. It is very Batman and Robin, and I don't want you to ever feel... I know you don't, but if you do... <laughs> like, I know I'm Robin. Just so you know. I'm like the third Robin. I'm like, you know, if Robin died, there was like the girl Robin. <laughs> I'm the third Robin. <laughs> and I'm okay you're with the that. Best, you're the best Robin. You should add yeah. that at the very, the very end of the post. <laughs> you should add that. At, yeah, that's a good way to say. Add this at the very end of the episode after, like, the thing, you know? <laughs>